electricity and internet service is less reliable than even yours uh, in Lancaster County in a snowstorm. And uh, so Stacy wrote me uh, this week and, uh, again, was just very grateful. She said um, she was doing kind of what the Apostle Paul does at the end of Philippians 4, saying, thank you, God always provides for us, but we're grateful for how he does it through you. Uh, they, uh, she said, every month our needs are met, but we have in recent months had a number of supporters uh, stop their support due to the economy. Uh, and she said, just last week, one of the churches that had been giving us um, $250 a month dropped to $80 a month. And um, she said, we're just so thankful for uh, you and the encouragement this brings. So I pass it on to you again. Um, God blesses according to his sovereign wisdom. And you uh, have the opportunity every week. You give generously in the offering, and I am grateful to you for it. And I will, uh, I'm happy to pass on to you how this is significantly impacting uh, someone well around the world, reaching an unreached people group with the gospel. So I commend you for your sacrifice, and we give thanks to God for his blessing to us. Uh, this past week, uh, the online magazine Salon uh, had this article. It was called Four Shocking Examples of American Inequality. I'm going to read uh, how it began. Here's the article. Inequality, it says, is a cancer on society here in the U.S. and across the globe. It keeps growing. But humanity seems helpless against it, as if it's an alien force that no one understands, even as the life is being gradually drained from its victims. The recent Oxfam, Oxfam is an international aid organization, the recent Oxfam report on global wealth inequality reveals some of the ugly extremes that have divided our world. It also directs our attention to the Global Wealth Report compiled by the Credit Suisse and the Companion Data Book, which offer a shocking testament to the severity of U.S. and global inequalities. Here's the first shocking example. The 30 richest Americans own as half as much, half as much of the U.S. population. The Oxfam report tells us that 85 individuals own as much as half of the world. That is, there are 85 people in the world that if you compile all of their wealth, they own as much as 50% of the world combined. And in America, it's 30. 30 Americans own as much as half of the rest of the population. Here's uh, the statistics. The U.S. is the biggest reason for the global inequality with 5% of the world's population and 30% of the wealth. China, India, and Africa, on the other hand, combine for about half the world's population and just 12% of the wealth. In the U.S., the richest 30 individuals own about $792 billion, while the bottom half of Americans own 1.1% of our country's wealth, also about $792 billion. That's 30 people owning as much as 157 million people. This information is derived from the Global Wealth Data Book and the Forbes 400 list. More details are provided at Us Against Greed. This is kind of surprising to read the statistics. Uh, I, it's not hard to get uh, together a group of 30 people. You know 30 people. You could name 30 people in two minutes that you know. And, and if you gathered all those 30 people together, it's hard to conceive that that same number, that small a group owns as much collectively as half of the U.S. population. That's somewhat of a stunning statistic to me. 
And after I read the article, I thought to myself, now I wonder how I'm supposed to evaluate this statistic, this information. Uh, it's it's easy, easy to understand if you read Salon uh, how they think you should evaluate this statistic. Inequality is a cancer on society. We are the victims of this alien force. And implicit, too, in this article is what often happens with left-of-center news outlets like Salon and, and other um, journals and newspaper, or, um, newspapers. Uh, it says that the reason for this uh, inequality is it's, it's unfairness, injustice. The wealthy got this wealth unfairly, unjustly. They cheated their way. Capitalism is evil um, and... Uh, Everybody who has any sort of money, more than they need, or more than I think they should have, they have it as a result of greed. Um, and lest you be concerned about that, Salon has a solution as well. Um, wealth taxes. Here's an example of what they think they should do. If you taxed at uh, one-tenth of one percent of the income of every one of these wealthy Americans, it would provide enough money to shelter every homeless person in America for one year. Pretty astounding. One-tenth of one percent. That's what Salon thinks. Central to our thinking about this, my question, though, as I think about this, is what does the Bible say about this inequality? How would Scripture teach us to evaluate and to think about these facts, this situation? I don't think the Bible sees it the same way that Salon does. For example, when it comes to wealth and poverty, the Bible is very clear that God makes some people fabulously wealthy. He has done that in the past. He has done it uh, in our time. This is part of God's sovereign working out of his plans in the universe. The Bible also tells us that poverty isn't going anywhere. The Old Testament and the New Testament both say, Jesus himself, the poor you will always have with you. The Bible isn't simplistic about the causes of inequality either. I don't think Salon is. I don't think serious people who talk about this are. But notice that the overall leaning here, the reason the rich are rich is because of injustice and oppression and violence and greed and cheating. The reason they have billions and I don't is because they took advantage of somebody. And that's the most common, often, explanation. Remember, one of the... the, um, companies or organizations they cite here is a company called Us, a website, an organization called Us Against Greed. Now what would happen if you turn it around? This is, if that's a mistake of the left, let's simplify it like the right does oversimplistically. What do they say? Well, the reason the poor are poor is because of laziness or addictions or immorality or foolishness. And the, you know, the Bible's not that simplistic. In either direction. Inequality involves a lot more than immorality and laziness or greed. The Bible also helps us see, actually, the complexity of this situation by reminding us that we have a very difficult time talking about wealth and money without the heart issues coming to the fore. Pride, greed, self-righteousness. Here's, here's an example. I'm listening to a book right now, on a recorded book, and uh, one of the characters in this novel, this true-to-life novel, is a Russian oligarch. He's a man who fled from Russia, uh, and he has billions of dollars hidden away somewhere, and he is well-known for wearing $10,000 suits. 
$10,000 suits. I don't know that in my life I've spent $10,000 on clothes. All the clothes that I own, total. Um, I have no trouble, I know it's a novel, I have no trouble believing that there are people who wear $10,000 suits. And listen to this, I also have no doubt that I could use that money a whole lot better than they can. If someone gave me one-tenth of one percent of the income of the wealthiest Americans, I know I could use it way better than the IRS could. I know without a doubt that I, I'm actually more worthy of the money that the one percent wastes on themselves. I could do a lot of good with it, much more than they can. I know that for sure. And I would not spend it on $10,000 suits. Five would be my limit. Do you ever have thoughts like that? You see something, you, you hear some news, come and see the celebrity and how much they spent on this dress or how much uh, this uh, basketball player he spent on this ring to apologize to his wife for all the affairs he's had. In. And, and it's all this money. And you think to yourself, boy, if I had that kind of money, I'd, I mean, I deserve it more than they do. And I, I'd be a whole lot smarter with it than they are. Does that thought ever run through your mind? It's so easy when we talk about money, especially other people's money, that, that it's easy to slip into self-righteousness and greed and resentment and, and envy. And some people have suggested to us that the solution to the problems that we have can be found here in this chapter of the Bible where the subject is the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years in ancient Israel, by God's decree, debt would come to an end, indentured servanthood would cease, property would revert to its original owners, and some people argued that the government should just declare a debt jubilee and wipe away all consumer debt all at once. It would be marvelous. June 1st, 2014, the government by declaration is going to declare your house paid for, your college bills excused, and uh, that money that you spent on the couch you shouldn't have in May is going to be forgiven. June 1st. Uh, what, what happened if that would be a law? <laughs> I know what I'd do on May 31st. <laughs> the problem with that idea is that I'm not sure that those advocating this position of this debt cancellation are reading Leviticus 25 properly. That's actually not what it says. And there are so many differences between what's written here and our current situation that it makes making direct applications difficult. For example, almost everything in this, this chapter has to do with interpersonal financial matters. There's no such thing as a, a credit card company in Leviticus 25. There's no mortgages in Leviticus 25. There's no banks. Also, this is a text for God's covenant people, Israel. There are some differences here. There are things that can be applied to them that can't be applied to any other nation that doesn't have the same covenant with God. And the economic system here is so different. The, the wealth, the, the value, where you had your money was in the land. The land was everything. There, was, uh, there were no IRAs. There were no savings account. It was, your wealth was determined by how much property you had and how much property you controlled. It's a vastly different economy than ours. Despite that, though, this is a good passage for us to look at because embedded here are, are some core values, some, some ideas that are supposed to shape how we think 
about what we own and what sort of value should infuse our public thinking about uh, wealth and poverty and debt. This is a long passage. We're going to look at the rest of Leviticus 25, verses 8 through 55. And actually, I want to read the passage. And as I do, I'm going to stop every now and then, every paragraph or so, and explain a little bit more of the technicalities of what's going on. And then what I want to do is I want to surface four of these key values about wealth and poverty that are embedded here. So let's begin here in verse 8. We're going to start reading in verse 8. The text says, Count off seven, seven Sabbath years. Seven times seven years. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Jubilee is a word that is uh, actually a Hebrew word, and it's the word for ram's horn. It's a ram's horn year. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vine. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. Now this paragraph describes the basic mechanics of the year of jubilee. There's some discussion about um, how long it lasted and when it actually started uh, and whether it was a whole year or just a period of time. The most straightforward reading of the text, though, is that in the 49th year would be a year of Sabbath, a Sabbath year described in the first seven verses of this passage. And then the 50th year, every 50th year, would be a jubilee year. It started on the Day of Atonement, which I think is significant. We'll talk about why in just a minute. It, again, it didn't start at the beginning of the year. It started in the seventh month, just before the fall planting season. And two things happened during the year of Jubilee. First, there was to be no cultivating of the fields. Now think about this. In combination with the Sabbath year, the 49th year, and then the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, that meant what? For two years, there was to be no farming, no cultivating, no planting, no sowing, no reaping. Now that should raise a question in your mind. Where's the food going to come from? How are they going to survive two years? Well, what happened to your farm if you didn't farm it for two years? I'm not maybe concerned about your farm so much as your bank account, right? And the second major element here is, is about the land. The land is to return to its original owners and the people are to return with it. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Now, let's look at verses 14 through 17. It's going to tell us about the value of land. How does buying and selling of land work during the year of Jubilee or in light of the year of Jubilee? Look at verse 14. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. And they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is of the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, notice, this is where people misunderstand what the year of Jubilee is about and what it says about debt. When you bought land, you were not actually buying land from someone. 
you were subleasing the land. You were actually buying the crops that it could produce. And the price varied based on how many years until the year of Jubilee. So imagine you got into a financial situation, a little bit of trouble, and you didn't have enough food to feed your family. What are you going to do? Well, you need cash right now. You might have a lot of land, but you need some cash. So you go to your neighbor who's got a lot of cash, and you say to him, I need to sell some of my land to you. I need the cash right now. And the neighbor would say, all right. Uh, You'd figure out how much he wants to sell. And what you would do is you'd figure out the price based on the number of harvest seasons between then and the year of Jubilee. So if there was 20 years between now and and Jubilee, you'd pay one price. If there was 15 years between now and Jubilee, you'd pay him a, a different price, a lower price. You'd get the cash and he would get the right to use that land for, a however, long, uh, for, for however long remained between the year of Jubilee. So Jubilee is not about debt ending. It's not about canceling debts. It's about the land being transferred back to you. You have already received the cash for it. Uh, you, 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 you loaned it out. You subleased it for somebody and now it's returning again to your control. Now, Uh, How did the people survive without farming the land? Verse 18. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat, eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The most significant factor in the size of crops in ancient Israel was the amount of rainfall. And God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going I'm to pour rain on the earth like you are not going to believe. And, and this crop, this harvest will be phenomenal and will last you long enough. He's going to sustain them. He's going to provide for them. And here in verses 23 and 24, as we continue here, is the key to the issue of the whole year of Jubilee. And it tells us actually why the covenant is such a barrier to transferring this wholesale to our country. Look at verse 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. The land is mine, God says. That's why you can't sell it permanently. It's my land, and I'm letting you live on it. In fact, I'm assigning you portions of my land, but it's it's mine. That's why you can't sell it. Actually, what this passage is trying to do is try to balance two very delicate things. On the one hand, um, this chapter advocates family possession of the land, clan ownership of the land. This is not a passage that's condemning private property. That's not what's going on. The people really did own it. On the other hand, though, God owns the land. He has the right to oversee its ownership and its uh, selling and and buying. So both of these things are true. The people actually own the land, but it's God's too. And the, the text is trying to balance these things out. Now, verses 25 through 28, we we have some special circumstances about the land, and we have the introduction of the kinsman redeemer, wonderful person who shows up in the book of Ruth. Look with me here. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, 
their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the year since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay what was sold, will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee and they can go back to their property. So when you sell your land, three things can happen that will bring the land back to you. Number one, a kinsman redeemer can come and pay, uh, what, you, pay what you sold the land for and redeem the land back for you. This kinsman redeemer here. Think with me about the book of Ruth. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He steps into this situation and he buys back the land that Ruth's husband um, had sold. Actually, Ruth's father-in-law had sold. And uh, uh, then he, he redeems and rescues her. Now, in the book of Ruth, this wonderful romance story in the Bible here, Boaz gets the girl too. And that's a great story. Um, if, uh, if you have no kinsman redeemer, that's the first option. If you have no kinsman redeemer, number two, you could earn enough money to buy the land back for yourself and redeem yourself. That's possible. Uh, number three, finally, there's the year of Jubilee when the land would come back to you. And in that case, think about this, because God declared it so, God is your redeemer. God's your kinsman redeemer. God says in the year of Jubilee, if you have no close relatives... I will be your close relative. I will come and and I will demand that the land come back to you. Isaiah 54, God says, I am your redeemer. Now, verses 29 through 34, we're not going to read these passages, but they're about two special cases, houses in cities and land that belongs to the Levites. Houses in cities could not be redeemed and would not return in the year of Jubilee because they had nothing to do with farming. So, since you didn't live off of the house in the city, it was, it was um, not to be returned in the year of Jubilee. Also, it seems like in ancient cities they did a lot of development. Um, so the house might change significantly, or the property might change significantly in 49 years. The other thing that uh, uh, this passage talks about, though, is Levites. The Levites could always redeem their houses, no matter where they are. Remember the Levites, that one tribe in Israel that didn't receive an allotment of land, so the rules uh, for Jubilee are a little bit different for them. Now, verse 35, we'll pick it up here. It talks here about interest. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now, the Bible here is not saying that interest itself is immoral. Deuteronomy and Exodus both allow you to loan money with interest. But here, the issue is you cannot charge interest for a member of the nation who is struggling. Don't take advantage of their situation. Notice there's a progression in this passage. First, we have a guy who, who because of uh, financial problems, is selling land. Now we move down to the guy who can't sell land at all. He's got to borrow money. And if that's the situation, don't charge him interest. Don't take advantage of the poor in the situation that they're in. 
Don't go into a poor neighborhood and set up a check cashing business where you charge them 30% of their paycheck because that's immoral. Now, we move from that situation and we go down even farther to a person who can't borrow any more money, doesn't have any land to sell, and he is going to sell himself and his family into slavery. That's in verses 39 and four, uh, to the end. Let, look at this passage here. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath to them, bequeath them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sell themselves to the foreigner or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may come to redeem them, an uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. They and their buyer are to count the time from the year they sold themselves up to the year of Jubilee. The price for their release is to be based on the rate paid to a hired worker for that number of years. So you can do the math here how this is going to work out economically, how much you're going to have to pay to free yourself from slavery. If many years remain, they must pay for the redemption a larger share of the price paid for them. If only a few years remain until the year of Jubilee, they are to compute that and pay for their redemption accordingly. They are to be treated as workers hired from year to year. You must see to it that those to whom they owe service do not rule over them ruthlessly. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. Notice earlier he said, this is my land, and now he's saying they're my servants. The Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, talking about slavery in the Old Testament can be difficult at times. In fact, you, when you're speaking to someone about your faith in the Lord Jesus, might bring up this issue. Well, doesn't the Bible condemn or condone slavery? Why is there slavery in the Bible? Why didn't, why didn't Jesus free all the slaves all over the world if Jesus and the Bible are so moral? And one of the problems that we have is we have so deeply embedded in our mind American slavery that we, we struggle uh, that is not what is being described here. This is not racially based uh, chattel slavery like was practiced in the United States. Um, we talked about this a few months ago when we were going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, the people are selling themselves into slavery. Uh, they're not being uh, kidnapped into slavery. It's not racial. It's not permanent. It's not abusive. Slaves don't become the property of their masters in the sense that African slaves were the property of their owners. There's a few of the differences here. And what is clear from the overall tenor of the Bible is that, the, is that slavery is not commensurate with God's creation design. And true, parts of the law of the Bible, they, they regulate slavery, but they don't endorse slavery. And there's a difference. 
This is somewhat similar to how the Bible treats uh, polygamy. Sometimes I read articles about uh, criticizing the biblical view of marriage. And they say, well, what is the biblical view of marriage? Having two wives, four wives, or like Solomon, 900 wives and 700 concubines. You know, that's, that, that's the, the issue. I was off on my numbers, but you get the idea. What is the biblical idea of marriage? Well, the Bible, the, many of the heroes in the Old Testament were polygamists. That didn't disqualify them for participating in God's plan, and the Bible doesn't condemn them specifically, but, oh, find me, you can't find in the Bible a happy polygamous family. It was a disaster. It was always a disaster. How does the Bible condemn polygamy? By showing you some of the most miserable families on the planet. Uh, And and remember here, uh, the New Testament... Uh, brings both polygamy and slavery to an end by showing us the better option. In particular, when the Apostle Paul told Christians to treat fellow slaves or slaves that they owned as brothers and sisters in Christ, if they're believers, uh, the gospel changes how you treat those slaves. The gospel actually just suffocates slavery. It's how the New Testament brings slavery to an end. The gospel suffocates it. It died. I know there are Christians in the American South, we have no reason to deny this history, there are Christians in the American South who use passages like this and in Ephesians and Colossians to defend their practice of slavery, but you have to twist the Bible to the breaking point to make what happened in the American South cohere with what the Bible teaches. Now what happens in this passage is that slavery is a sort of social safety system. If you didn't have any land to sell and you couldn't borrow any more money, you could sell your labor as a slave. Now notice it's very, very carefully regulated. You're not to be treated harshly. You're to be treated as a hired worker. But what happens if you just get to the end of your financial situation, I cannot fix the mess I'm in. I, you, you make this deal with, I will come and work with you. If you give me food and clothing and shelter, my labor is yours. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Just give me these three things. That's what a master was supposed to do. This is the the bottom of the social safety system. You sell yourself to someone else. You sell your labor to someone else. This is the year of Jubilee. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime event for most Israelites. Once in a lifetime, uh, there was this system that was for the protection of the poor, and it was to keep Israel from becoming a feudal system. And uh, it also taught the Israelites, and it teaches us how to think about wealth and how to think about poverty. And that's, that's what I want to do. Let me share with you some values that are embedded in this text. The first one here is the call to compassion. The call to compassion. This passage is filled with restrictions and requirements for how the poor are to be treated in Israel. They're to be redeemed. Uh, if they were enslaved, they were to be treated fairly, not harshly. They were to be treated with dignity as human beings. They were to be the recipients of no-interest loans. I hinted at this a moment ago. I don't think it, it would be difficult from this passage to make an argument against predatory lending practices. It's immoral to loan people, to, people money that they will never be able to pay back. It's immoral to lock them into a system from which there is no escape. 
It's an easy example. I, I gave one, I suppose. Here's another easy example. One that, thanks to unions, doesn't exist much more in our world. But imagine what life was like 130 years ago if you worked for a factory in a factory town. And you, you were paid by the factory. You lived in a factory house. They charged you rent. And you shopped at the factory store. Uh, prices were a little higher. And, and you would work and work for this factory and never actually get ahead. You were always perpetually in debt to the company. It's an immoral practice. Uh, uh, perhaps a more modern-day example might be the lending practices of credit card companies or educational loans. They offer endless credit to young adults. Just borrow more, just borrow more, just borrow more, and they'll be slaves for life to that debt. Now, what's interesting, though, in this passage here about uh, helping the poor... Uh, treating them with compassion, is that the, it says nothing about how they became poor. There's not one statement in Leviticus 25 about how the poor became poor and in need of help. There's other places in the Bible that talk about this. Proverbs talks about it. It talks about poverty as a result of injustice, and it talks about poverty as a result of sloth. Sometimes in the Bible, poverty comes from famine, doesn't it? Just certain economic situations. The focus of this situation, though, is that not that the poor are not to be the recipients of your diagnosis. As if we can explain completely why they're suffering. They're supposed to be, though, the focus of your compassionate aid. That's what the extra money that you have is for. Be careful. Be very careful trying to decide who is worthy and who is not worthy of your help. The Bible doesn't say to be foolish and throw money away, but it, it condemns holding back help because you don't think someone deserves it. If you have any doubts about that, notice that the model for generosity to the poor is, verse, is in verse 38. Who is it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. The Israelites, who were ungrateful, undeserving, unfaithful, complaining people, were rescued by, from slavery by God himself. Do you know any ungrateful, undeserving, unfaithful, complaining people who need your help? Rescued people rescue others. It's a call of compassion. Now, second notice here, the necessity of work. The necessity of work. The Bible makes this connection all the way through it between the, uh, the work and its reward. Those who labor are worthy of their wages. And, and those who do not work should not receive the benefits of other people's labor. Now, this is a balance with this call to compassion. Here's what slavery is for. This is what it does. It's a system that keeps people working. People who, for whatever circumstances, have come to the end of themselves, they are to be at work. I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in government programs. There, there's a connection that the Bible makes consistently between the value of human work and human flourishing. And you suffer, a society suffers when it severs work from reward, either through uh, 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 taxation or through social programs. And if you sever that connection, this is why a lot of people applaud uh, the earned income tax credit. It's a way to keep that connection between helping people and work. 
And it's why, perhaps you heard it, a small furor broke out this week. The Congressional Budget Office said, and I heard various interpretations of this, that the Affordable Care Act is going to be a disincentive for work. It disincentivizes work. That's troubling. It should be troubling to everybody. Now, number three on this list here, uh, the necessity of work. Number three on this list of values is another one uh, that's not often discussed. The stability of the family. The stability of the family. Um, Albert Moeller discussed this recently on his podcast. This is part of human flourishing. Work and family are part of human flourishing. And it's not very often mentioned in the public debate when it comes to wealth and poverty. Now think with me for a minute. How does this passage promote family stability? And, and a couple of ways. First of all, it, it, it mentions the kinsman redeemer. You are a hero if you come and rescue one of your family members. Stability of the family. Second, there's this emphasis on family land. We're going to keep the land in our family as our clan. This is our family's land. We have it. God gave it to us. And this, this group possession here promotes family unity. Um, a couple weeks ago, Ari Fleischer wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, where he summarized some of the work of the Beverly LaHaye Institute when it comes to poverty and marriage. Here's some things worth thinking about. Among families headed by two married parents... In 2012, the poverty rate was 7.5%. So two parents, poverty rate was 7.5%. By contrast, when families are headed by a single mother, the poverty level jumps to 33.9%. The Heritage Institute found similar things. Among white married couples, the poverty rate in 2009 was 3.2%. For white non-married families, the rate was 22%. Among black married couples, the poverty rate was only 7%, but the rate for non-married black families was 35.6%. Brad Wilcox is a sociologist at the University of Virginia. He said that this research mostly holds true for married couples, for couples who get married first and then have children, not the other way around. It's, It's that taunt, right, that's so true. Do you want to stay out of poverty? First comes the love, then comes the marriage. Then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Right? How to avoid poverty. It's not a very... I don't expect anybody to run on that platform. Right? For office in November. To eradicate poverty by eradicating single-parent households. One of the best ways to fight poverty is to promote the stability of marriage and and family. These are big and broad statistics and numbers here. But I want to think more specifically about this with your situation, with your family. Several people who write on Leviticus 25, they say, why does the Bible talk specifically about kinsmen redeemers and your family coming to rescue you? Because God is trying to counter an attitude that maybe you have in your family. Ha! Rescue you? I've had to rescue you my whole life. I had to rescue you from the swing set when you were three, and now I have to rescue you again? And, it's embarrassing, you have my same last name, and you're a goof. I have to rescue you? Ever had that attitude, or think that might run through a family? Huh. The Lord gave these instructions to keep those 
thoughts and those attitudes from controlling your behavior. Now, think about how the New Testament develops this even more, doesn't it? In the New Testament, when it talks about family, what, what is it talking about? Brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down for his life, and we ought to lay, lay down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now finally here, there is the centrality of God, the centrality of God. Notice all of this, the compassion, the work, the stewardship, it all flows from God and His role. He says, most importantly, this is my land. These are my servants. The person most central to the functioning of the stock market will not be mentioned once in the pages of the Wall Street Money Report today. It's God himself. The Lord here is shaping and forming his people. He wants them to be, oh, I want it to be true in my life, that I don't balance my checkbook but I can't balance my checkbook without thinking about what God wants me to do with this money and his role and his centrality to how these checks that I write. It's written on all of our money, isn't it? In God we trust. Huh. A few years ago, uh, the Mint started producing $1 presidential coins. Do you remember those coins? Uh, and, and in God we trust was not on the face or on the reverse. It was, it, it was on the side. It was engraved on the, the side of the coin. And there were people who complained that the government was trying to remove the importance of this motto, in God we trust. <laughs> we don't think much about God anyway when it comes to money, do we? His presence, His promise, His design, they're loaded into this passage. If this economic system in Leviticus 25 were a, sun, a sponge, a soaking sponge, and you squeezed it, God would come out. He's everywhere infused into this. If they were going to do this, if they were going to do this year of Jubilee, uh, they would have to trust that God would provide. That's how he's, one of the ways he's embedded in this passage. See, the Israelites needed to learn that the central issue in their survival is not their ability to work, but the faithfulness of God to provide. You ever have that feeling? Oh, we live in Lancaster County, right? We work hard. We know how to work. We can outwork anybody. Think about if you're, if you're a farmer, especially in ancient Israel. Here you are uh, farming, and everything you sit on, everything you eat from, everything you eat, everything you touched, you made. You got it from somewhere. It's yours. And you work hard, right? You, you get up early in the morning. Everybody else is still sleeping, but you're up working, and you work late at night. You're, you, you're something else because you work. You can work really hard. And the whole passage here, huh. who, who is ultimately determined? What ultimately determines your ability to survive? In vain, Psalm 127, Karen Bickford read it last week, in vain you work hard, in vain you labor, in vain you... God gives to us in our sleep. It's not an excuse to not work. It's, it's, it's a call to recognize 
The most important factor is not your skill set, not the hours that you work. It's that God is kind and provides for you. This passage is infused with God's presence in that it teaches us that the wealthy that, that teaches the, the wealthy that money is temporary. How long could you control land in ancient Israel by this design? Forty-nine years. Because every 50 years, every plot that you uh, thought that you bought or that you contracted returned to its original owner. Money is temporary. Wealth is temporary. And because it's temporary, it makes a terrible God. It doesn't do everything that you want it to. It doesn't bring ultimate satisfaction. It doesn't determine your eternal destiny. It's not the most important factor in your family happiness. It's not going to solve all of your problems. It won't provide you with ultimate security. It's a terrible, terrible God. Several news outlets, you probably saw it this week, carried the story of the man who was buried with his Harley Davidson motorcycle. Did you see that story? Bill Stanley, he died from lung cancer last week. He was 82 years old. And they used five embalmers, uh, straps, and a metal back support. They positioned him sitting dead on top of his motorcycle. It was the creepiest looking thing you have ever seen. Uh, they had him dressed. He had his helmet on. I'm not sure why. Why, if you're dead, would you wear your helmet? Uh, they, they bought three plots so they, they could fit him and his Harley in the ground, in the box in which he was um, riding. <laughs> I don't begrudge this man his love of his motorcycle. I'm glad he loved to ride his motorcycle. If you have one and you love to ride it, good for you. I'm very happy for you. But in the ground, the Harley doesn't roar. And the wind doesn't rush past your face. And... <laughs> Even if it did, dead men don't feel vibrating engines and roaring winds. Riding a motorcycle is a temporary joy, and so is possessing money. The Apostle James actually warned, if you're rich, you should be weeping and mourning because, oh, be very careful because wealth is temporary. God's design is magnified here because he's, he's claiming his right to be their God and not their wealth. He's magnifying his design because in this year of jubilee, what happens? The social status of everyone is flattened out. This is how God made us, his original design. We are equal before him. Slaves are freed. Rich people, they lose control of the land that they had. It's creation design. This passage also points to God's promise his promise to bring true freedom. I think it is very significant that the year of Jubilee begins on the Day of Atonement. Remember what the Day of Atonement was? The Day of Atonement is the day when all sin, all uncleanness, all guilt before God is washed away. A perfect sacrifice is made in the temple and a goat who represents all their defilement is taken out of the assembly never to return. It's one day when every Israelite was at total peace with God. And during the year of Jubilee, all Israelites were not only at peace with God, but they were free. Their land was theirs again. Their labor was theirs again. They, they returned home. This year of, of Jubilee is, is an important pointer 
It's an important pointer to two things. First, it's an important pointer to the Messiah. Isaiah 61 promised that the Messiah would come and declare jubilee. He'd come and declare liberty. That's a key word in, in this passage. Freedom. And that's what the Lord Jesus said in one of His first sermons. He said, I have come to declare the freedom. I have come to declare liberty. Freedom for the captives. The Lord Jesus, He's the one who removes all uncleanness before God and He puts all human interactions into perspective. That's what He did on the cross. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the sin bearer. He's the one who takes in Himself all of the greed and the envy and the injustice and the selfishness and self-righteousness in my heart and He bore the wrath of God in my place so that all who believe find forgiveness and peace the year of Jubilee. Jesus is, is the Jubilee. And knowing Him puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? I like to participate in weddings. Um, I like to do funerals more, but weddings are good too. Um, at, a, at a wedding, lots of people come together. What, many of them are strangers. They don't, they don't know each other. They get dressed up. They attend a ceremony. They come together. Why do they gather together? They come together for the sake of the bride and groom. Their, their relationship with that couple is the great equalizer. Uh, we went to a wedding a few years ago on New Year's Eve. It was wonderful. I was sitting there with um, some executive from Dow Chemical and a man who owned his own business in Columbus. And We were not in the same sphere, but we were there at the table. Why? Because we both knew and loved the bride and groom. Jesus is the great equalizer. He, he sets the ad- agenda. He's the great bridegroom. And knowing Him levels things out. It, it puts wealth and poverty in perspective. The year of Jubilee anticipates the Messiah, but it also anticipates that great day when God is going to make all things new. The distinction between rich and poor, the things we think matter so much that are so influential in establishing your role in society are going to vanish just like that. And rich and poor who are believers in the Lord Jesus are going to take their seat at His table. Life is hard. I'm reading the book of Job. I'm going through the book of Job. And Job says, life on earth is so hard. This this week is a struggle, isn't it? David prayed about that. You can just see it. Don't people feel weighed down? It's cold and and, and, um, dark in some of your homes. It's hard to get around. and You walk so carefully. There's no warmth outside to rejuvenate you. You, you can't go to the exercising, the walking outside that, that you want to do. And you look out and there's sticks all over your lawn that now you have more labor to do. Life is just is hard. But there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus comes and he's going to declare jubilee. And when you sit down and you, you balance your checkbook and you think about all the things you want to do for your kids that you can't and all the things that you wish the things you, could, you wish you could give away and the things you wish you could invest in, the opportunities you wish, all those desires, all those, they're going to be gone. That burden that you feel, it's going to be over. Jubilee, jubilee, jubilee. Uh, my wife hasn't done it in a while, but for a, a long time she really enjoyed uh, quilting. And one of the crucial elements involved in putting together a beautiful quilt and selecting the fabric for it is to have 
fabric that, that is in different values next to each other. That is, you want to put light fabric next to dark fabric. That really brings out the vitality in, in a quilt. One of the problems, though, in selecting fabric is that sometimes patterns in the fabric can be distracting. If there's a lot of stripes or a lot of solids or a plaids, it's hard to tell. Is that fabric really light or is it really dark? It's, it's hard to tell. So quilters sometimes use something called a value finder. It's a red piece of plastic. Sometimes, I suppose, a red piece of glass. It's got to be red. And, and if you put it on top of the fabric, what that value tester does is it removes all the distractions of the pattern. It removes the, the distraction of the stripe and the solid and the, and the, the dots. It, it just removes all of those, those pattern distractions. So you can see, ah, it's very clear. You put that red piece of plastic on a, on a piece of fabric, it's evidently clear whether it's dark or it's light. So the year of Jubilee and the eternity of foreshadows is a, is a sort of spiritual value tester. It removes all of the distractions of wealth and poverty and debt so that God's people can very clearly enjoy their union with him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as, as we will sing in a moment and we think about this year of Jubilee and what it foreshadows, we, we can say with... Um, the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we are grateful to you that in your wisdom, is part of your awesomeness, that you set it up this system for the nation of Israel that would protect the poor and provide for the poor and put wealth in perspective. You are, you are so good to do that for your people. Lord, we confess that we are often those, we, we get wealth and poverty out of perspective. And we speak from our own greed and we speak from our own envy and our own self-righteousness and our own resentment. Lord, would you, um, through the Lord Jesus, would you shape how we think about what we own? Make it true. And we touch that money in our wallet this week to pay for something that we would do it because we trust in God. Oh, help us. Huh. We are often confused. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and we feel that tug and that pull. Thank you for this great system that we learn about in the Old Testament, and more importantly, the Lord Jesus, our Jubilee, who has set us free. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.